Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. For this week's bonus episode, I'm joined with a man who was sentenced to 32 years in prison at the age of 18, which at that time was twice the maximum sentencing guidelines. After serving 19 years, he was finally granted clemency by the governor. And now that he's out, he is taking full advantage of his second chance by taking his story to the masses. You can find him on TikTok at second underscore chancer. His name is Jesse Crossan. And he's trying to make some big waves now that he's out in the free world for prison reform. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Jesse, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. Yep, no problem. So you have, uh, you're actually brought to my attention by one of my listeners who actually, grew, uh, lived in your, in your hometown. And, uh, you are running the, the TikTok account, second underscore chancer, where you start off talking about your experiences in prison and your second chance in life. And you've, you've kind of gone viral. Uh, and, uh, Sarah has suggested I reached out to you. So we've got you on the line now. So can you first break down, uh, let people know what, what is your, what is your story? What led you to be in prison and, and then how you got out and, and what you've been doing ever since? Sure. So, uh, yeah, Sarah and I went to high school together and I was in the process. I was taking a year off before college and I found cocaine and it was just like a supercharger for, you know, every kind of bad habit and issue and substance abuse struggle that I had. And within three months, I went from that kid, you know, taking a year off from college to, committing a robbery to try to get more drugs and driving down the road and shooting at somebody who was chasing me and just complete and utter insanity. Um, so I, I was, or I pled guilty to robbery and to unlawful wounding related to two events, uh, and went to court and was in jail and, you know, was kind of crushed, but was like trying to slowly kind of build myself back up. Uh, and then the day of sentencing, my guidelines were eight to 13 years. And then at sentencing, they were modified to 10 to 16 years. And the judge sentenced me to 32 years to serve. And that was kind of the, the first real big knockback where I was like, you know, I wanted to get my life together, but uh, I, I, I'm not, I'm going to be in prison until I'm 50. Like, why am I even trying? And 
Right. What, I just had this huge dose of. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask when you. So when you when you pled guilty, had, had there been like a plea deal arrangement already made at that point that you thought you were knew what you were going to get? No, no I, my my lawyer at the time had told me I would get ten years. There was no official plea deal, but the whole thing was I was guilty. Like, I mean, I'm sure there was a way to kind of negotiate or, or you know play a game with it, but it was like. You know, I committed these crimes. I want to take responsibility for this. I don't want to sit here and try to like make this a more complicated and more difficult process. I don't want to put the victims through having to testify and having to, you know, kind of re-experience everything that happened. So pleading guilty to me seemed like the responsible decision, regardless of the fact that there wasn't a plea bargain in place. Um, and yeah, I think that my attorney thought the same thing. He thought, okay, well, you know, we're just doing the right thing. There's no real need to negotiate on this because this isn't an extraordinary case. And then the judge just decided that day that, you know, I was a danger to society and yeah, it was it was a difficult situation, and that's one of the big problems we face with, um, you know, kind of unlimited judicial discretion and sentencing guidelines that are discretionary and not mandatory. Um, and then, you know, just a situation where there is no parole, there is no kind of review process. So when this happens, you know, I tell the story a lot of the times. Um, I was in prison with a guy who was sentenced when he was 15 years old, and he and three adult co-defendants committed a robbery. And uh, he got 95 years, and all the adult co-defendants in this situation got no more than 12 years. And nobody was killed, like no guns were fired, no anything. And it was just literally at the discretion of the judge that sentenced him on that day because robbery technically carries 20 to life in the state of Virginia. And it just, it blew my mind that things like that happen. And that, it, again, people don't realize it because people would constantly say, well, why didn't you get parole? And it's like, well, because Virginia abolished parole in 1995. Oh, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. So, so there is no parole in Virginia at all? No, there is, if you were sentenced before 95, you were still eligible, but anyone sentenced since 95. Now, in 2020, they changed uh, one rule, so they said that juveniles who were sentenced to more than 20 years will now be eligible for parole after 20 years. But otherwise, no, there is no parole for anybody under normal circumstances. Wow, that's that's insane. So, so here you are, you're an 18-year-old kid thinking you're going to spend 10 years in prison, and then the judge sentenced you to 32 years. Yeah, and you know, I was crushed, and I definitely, I did not make the best decisions, and I did not, you know, turn the right direction. And I mean, that was another kind of like kind of failing and excuse for self-pity and excuse for, um, you know, making all the wrong decisions for all the wrong reasons. And that really had been my story because, you know, as much as I had wanted to be accountable and tried to live up to things, before the day of sentencing, I hadn't really been, it had been intellectual, right? I hadn't had any real face-to-face kind of consequences of my actions. And I was still incredibly kind of off balance from the drugs and from the, 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 you know, the violence and the insanity that both the things that I had done and the things I'd been around. And then the day of sentencing, um, the grandmother of one of the guys that I shot got up on the stand and her testimony, like, I still remember it to this day, just the way it kind of shook me to my core and just broke me inside. Um, and so all of a sudden, you know, I was in this defeated place where I felt completely and totally worthless. And the judge giving me 32 years seemed to validate that, you know, that worst year that I think has been my longest, you know, longest health worst year. Yeah, I'm completely worthless. I'm, I'm not redeemable. I'm not anything. And so I kind of fell back into this hole for a, a fairly long time. <laughs> And then, I don't know, maybe a year or two years later, um, I started kind of digging out of it again because I managed to find some good people. And again, my story was really more about the people around me than it was about me because even in that darkest moment, even in these worst times, I had people who loved me and supported me and believed in me and pushed me and, and lifted me up when I couldn't lift myself up. Um, and that was really the difference between me and a lot of other people because I saw so many other guys come in and kind of continue on that downward spiral, continue on that path. You know, one of the ones really breaks my heart. There was a guy who came into uh, Nottaway about the same time I did. He's about the same age with about the same amount of time. But his mindset was, hey, if I'm going to be in prison for 30 years, I'm going to make a reputation. I'm going to be comfortable. So within the first year, he found an excuse to stab somebody. It wasn't even like a life or death thing he had to. He did it because he felt like this was his way to safety. Like, if I can do this, I'll be safe. I'll have a reputation. Nobody will bother me. 
And it's, again, the lack of support and the lack of guidance. He's got somebody whispering in his ear that he does not have his ventures into his heart, that does not love him, does not care for him, um, and therefore is kind of like pushing him in this direction. And I had people that were, you know, pulling me out of all that, that BS. And I'm really grateful for that. So, so w- when you went into prison, because, you know, one of the big reasons I want to talk to you is, is to talk about some of the things that need to change in our prison. And, and you're somebody who's spent, what year was it that you, that you got locked up? 2002. 2002. So, so you did, uh, what is that about 19 years? That's correct. Yeah. So you said, you know, he, he felt like in order to be safe, he had to do that. Did, did you feel is that, you know, we all have our, our view from what we see on TV of what inside a prison is really like when, when you were actually in there, was there there that feeling of being unsafe, and was it actually unsafe uh, to be an inmate in a Virginia prison? So I've talked a lot about, uh, you know, the, the the first day that I went into prison, the, the main prison, which everybody had told me about, that I, you know, just need to be worried about. And I walked in, and it was people just living a normal life. People on the phone, watching TV, playing cards, like going in and out to work. Like, it was just, it was much more tame than I thought. And so on the one hand, the daily, the, the majority of the experience was that. But then the other side is two days later, we got up for breakfast and we were waiting for breakfast calls. Some guy pulls out a Rambo knife and starts chasing another guy around the pod with it. So it was, it was almost more horrifying because it was a norm that was completely boring. And then these just kind of moments and almost, uh, unpredictable, like, you know, bouts of violence. So there was, there was a lack of, uh, safety. But what I realized and what it really took for me to get out of that kind of fight or flight mode, which I really struggled with for years, was that at least the vast majority of the time, if not all the time, those situations don't just come out of out of the blue. Someone has to do something or instigate that or contribute in some way to that. You know, they owe money or they get into an argument or they, you know, are involved in some kind of politics that they shouldn't be involved in. And that leads to that. And it doesn't mean that it's okay. It just meant that if I could kind of stay away from things and stay out and kind of stay in my own lane, I didn't really have to worry about that. And once I realized that that was the case, I got a lot more comfortable. I was able to kind of let my guard down. I was able to kind of take the armor off. And not entirely. Like, I still definitely have some PTSD and some some kind of reactions from all those years, but I needed to get to at least that base level of not being in panic mode all the time. Um, and that is possible, but it, it's not the ideal environment for it. Yeah. I guess I, I should mention, I didn't even mention this, that you were, you were released and granted clemency uh, by governor Northam uh, just this past, it was August, right? August of 2021. Yes. So yeah, you got, you ended up getting out uh, about 13 years early. So that, but the, the, the time you spent there, once you kind of realized that groove, a lot of what you're talking about is is you know what we need to do to change our system. What did you experience in prison that kind of led you to all these insights and, and what we can do better? Well, so there are a number of things. You know, Northam granted the clemency because he said, you know, you were sentenced to double the high point of the sentencing guidelines. You were you're just over your 18th birthday, and you did extraordinary work while you were inside. He talks about the mentoring I did, getting a college degree, um, you know, getting a vocational trade, getting these different things. But other than uh, the vocational trade, which is offered by the Department of Corrections, but I literally had to break the rules to be able to get into the class to get it, everything else that I had, all the education that I got, was because I was fortunate. I had people who were willing to support me and pay for education and were in a position to do so. So all the things that essentially made me a a candidate for clemency for this exceptional or this extraordinary circumstance were because I had resources that aren't available to everybody. So it wasn't necessarily an accomplishment on my part. It was, this is what people do when they get the resources. Not everybody, but this is what more people would do if they had access to the resources. So on the education front, I was able to go to college and get a bachelor's degree because that was a possibility. Now, the Second Chance Act actually is opening up the Pell Grant um, that has been basically closed since the early 90s. So prisoners will be eligible for some of that money to go to uh, at least an associate's program, not a bachelor's program. And I'm not sure of the exact rules. 
But up until then, it was basically you get your GED, and if you're lucky, you get a vocational trade, and that's it. There's no further education. There's no opportunity. Now, if you had the money, like like my family did, I was able to get an education, but other people weren't. And then on like the counseling front, people you say you seem so so kind of you know emotionally mature, and it's like, well, yeah, because I had you know weekly phone calls with a gestalt therapist for 12 years. Like I had access to those resources because he was a family friend and he was willing to do that. And we had some really good mental health staff in prison, but you have this probably 5% of the population that's classified SMI or seriously mentally ill who are constantly, you know, doing acts of self-harm, uh, exposing themselves to other people, doing these kind of extreme situations. So they take up probably 90 or 95% of the staff's time. So then you have very capable and very willing staff members who are underpaid and under, under-resourced dealing with this the majority of the time, so there's very little time or energy left for the majority of the population. Whereas I, like I said, once a week was able to, you know, talk for 20 minutes with, with somebody in kind of a personal connection. So I think that if, if you break it down, we need to deal with a lot of things. Like the punishment, you know, kind of rec- helps people recognize that this behavior wasn't right, but it doesn't necessarily replace it with anything. Like if we say this is wrong, but we don't give people an alternative or another direction, uh, we can't really expect a different behavior. So if we're trying to fundamentally shift the way that people act or the way that people respond to things, we have to give them a different tool set. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, that's the job of a family or that's the job of whatever, or they should just know better. And it's really difficult for people to understand the position from which they're speaking. You know, if you grew up in a wonderful family that taught you really healthy emotional boundaries and really good coping mechanisms, that's absolutely amazing. But you really don't have the perspective on somebody who grew up in, in the foster care system or grew up in an incredibly abusive household or an incredibly like unsafe neighborhood. Um, and just trying to kind of open people's eyes to the reality that everyone has not lived the life that they've had, and that oftentimes it's, it's the most basic things or things they take for granted that we need to be focusing on. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When I was a mentor in the mental health program, there were a lot of different approaches. We did, basically, they started a peer support model mental health program because they recognized that staff just did not have the time or the resources to help the people that wanted help, but that weren't classified as seriously mentally ill or weren't engaged in these kind of extraordinary acts that drew everybody's attention. And so it was, you know, our job as people who had kind of, you know, figured this out and gotten our lives together to try to provide help and services to other prisoners, as well as to be kind of a nexus to the mental health department so that they could, you know, in, in extreme cases, get access to those resources or we could funnel whatever resources were available to them. And the things that were most effective, um, we had a DBT, a dialectical behavioral therapy uh, program, which is, in, it's, of all the models that are popularly available, it's by far my favorite, because it's kind of a holistic model, like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, gets has gotten a lot of study, has, you know, the most peer-reviewed stuff, 
But unfortunately, it's very limited. It's really only dealing with thinking patterns. And when you're dealing with traumatized individuals or people with stunted, you know, uh, emotional maturation or kind of different situations that are not kind of uh, healthy, full individuals that, you know, can just change their thought patterns, uh, this is a much more comprehensive approach. Um, and it, it was incredibly effective. And I taught some of the, the kind of subsets or some of the, the classes um, and, and had a lot of success because guys, for the first time, realized they had a sense of agency. They had a sense of choice. Like, hey, you mean I don't have to act when I feel angry? I don't have to act when I feel threatened? Like, there is a pause or there's a space between this or there's a different way to deal with this emotion? And things as simple as that that other people may take for granted are not necessarily known by someone who grew up in an incredibly uncomfortable or incredibly unsafe environment. Yeah. So a lot of times it's about communication on just the most basic levels. And there are a lot of different things from there. There's you know, nonviolent communication, which was a class I taught, which I'm a huge fan of. And then just, you know, kind of focusing on the, the practical side. Once we've given people the emotional coping skills and the emotional tools they need to live a life, well, then how are we going to help them succeed in, in a most basic way? Like, what kind of vocational skills can we give them? And often the vocational class isn't even necessarily about this particular skill, though often it is. But it's about giving people a sense of agency. Because most of the time when I talk to guys, especially before they'd been introduced to any kind of peer support model, or they had had access to some kind of privileged experience, their idea was, I'm going to get out and I'm going to work at McDonald's, or I'm going to go back to selling drugs, because there's nothing in between. There's no way I can get out and succeed as, as, as not committing crimes, because nobody's going to hire me. I'm a felon, because I'm poor, because I'm colored, because whatever the situation may be. Um, and I, I just think it's really unfortunate, and addressing that mindset is another big part of what we can do. What did you get your bachelor's degree in? Psychology. I kind of figured that from what the stuff you were, you were just <laughs> t- talking about. Yeah, that's great. So, so you you played a role in helping some of these inmates. Did you guys have any kind of so you you were released early? There's yeah, I'm sure you guys saw people come and go throughout the years. Was there any kind of any training or preparation that was given to inmates to prepare them to re-enter the the free world? I mean, not really. There's there is a re-entry program that some people, though not all people, go through before they get out. But I mean. And I'm, I promise you, I'm not even exaggerating when I say half of that is doing conga lines and playing charades. And I think that there is an important part of that in the sense of trying to take, have people have a different approach on life or kind of take away the seriousness of prison. But that is not, those are not the skills that people need when they've been locked up for 30 years and they've never seen a smartphone or don't know how to use the internet or have no idea how to navigate uh, the most basic processes. So yeah, I mean, practically no. There is one program that's, it's based on a cognitive behavioral model called uh, Thinking for a Change which is, in itself, it's not a bad thing, but literally every other program that they do is is pretty much a joke. And that's if they even do them. Like, during COVID, no program has been happening. Like, give me an example. When I went to Coffeewood, I was transferred to Coffeewood, and I wrote the unit manager, and I said, hey, I was a mentor at this other prison. You know, I was teaching these classes. I'd really like to. You know, would it be okay if I taught this and this and this? And her response was, we don't do programs in this building. It's like you've got 82 people locked in a building with no programs, no services, nowhere to go, and nothing to do. And I'm coming with a, a experience of having taught this in a prison, verified by the staff at the other prison, that has a high success rate, and your response is, no, we don't do programs here. And it's like, what do you expect people to do but get high and fight? Like, you're literally giving them no outlet, no productive direction, and you're prohibiting me from doing the thing that is actually costing you nothing and could provide an alternative. It just, it's mind-boggling the mindset of Department of Corrections in many cases. So now, now that you're out and you're, you're advocating to try to make some changes, is, is there like a specific set of points that you think that are issues that, that, that really need to be addressed to fix our criminal justice system from your own experiences? Sure. So like right 
now, locally, I'm really focused on transitional services and reentry because there is none. I mean, here's a hundred bucks and a bus ticket. Good luck. Like, uh, like I, the, I'll give you an example. I've done a couple donation drives where because of the TikTok account, I've raised, uh, or done an Amazon wish list to raise supplies for people who are getting out. So basic things like clothes and, and hygiene items and, uh, maybe a backpack or whatever people need, a, a towel set and a washcloth set. And I went to probation parole and I went to OAR, which is a local offender aid and restoration, which is kind of the, the services for prisoners. And they said, Hey, I've got a load of supplies. How can I get these guys getting out? And they said, uh, we don't know. And I said, well, don't you know anybody? And they sent me to another group, which is called Homes to Hope, which is run by the city. And they said, well, we can't go to donations, uh, go to probation and parole. And then probation and parole sends me to OAR. So there's a circle of people and nobody knows how or where to actually provide these supplies. So imagine getting someone who's getting out, who needs something, who needs the most fundamental thing and is just trying to get started. And the people who are literally in place to provide it don't know because there's no coordination of services. It's just, it's a disaster. So reentry is one of the big ones because the main thing is housing and employment. If we can find people housing and employment upon reentry, then we can worry about emotional skills. We can worry about coping mechanisms. We can worry about those things. But it's really hard to tell somebody, hey, we need to really deal with your emotional regulation when they're, they're homeless and they're trying to find a place to stay or they can't find a job to be able to pay the bills, or they can't find a job to be able to eat that day. Um, so I look at it as an order of kind of priority. So it's, it's, it's housing, and then it's employment, and then it's the skills that I think that are going to allow them to be successful. But reentry right now is my focus locally. Then in, in the prison system, I really think it comes back to, okay, you know, providing DBT, dialectic behavioral therapy, dealing with trauma, a trauma-informed care-based system, which does EMDR or other somatic-type therapies to deal with the trauma that the vast majority of prisoners have experienced and are whose lives are driven by it often. And then, again, vocational training. So we're dealing with the emotional issues and the trauma-based issues, and we're dealing with the vocational or, or employment issues so we can make sure that people have the opportunity to move forward. And, okay, then we, we have a transition. Now, ideally, if I could do something, I would have a, a three-part prison system where people start an environment where it's an intensive training thing. We're, we're going to put them through therapy until they show that they can they can use these skills that we're teaching them. They can operate in, a, in an emotionally mature and balanced way that will allow them to succeed. And then we would send them to an intensive vocational training place where they would get getting the job skills they need. And then the third step down would be a halfway house or a, a center where they're actually allowed to put those skills to use before they're released. Because right now, like I was, I was a violent felon because I have a robbery and an unlawful wounding. So I was never allowed to go to a work center and have a level one. So literally the day before I got out of prison, I was too dangerous to go to a work center. But the day I got out of prison, I had no supervision whatsoever. So there's no transition. There's no step down. It's literally people going from 23 and one lockdown or major prisons to freedom the next day with no in between. And that's just insane to not have a, a state run halfway house system or not have a state run step down system or not have everyone who's going to be released go to work release just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's ludicrous. Um, and then fundamentally, if you go back even further, if you're going to have a system like this, if you're not going to have a step down system that's based on performance or based on kind of like readiness for release, well, there needs to at least be a review of determinate sentencing, whether that's parole or some other mechanism. Because to say, you know, as a judge, you're expected to know when someone is no longer going to be a threat, whether that's five years or 10 years or 50 years or six months, we're asking them to be migrators. We're asking a very unreasonable thing of judges. And people ask me, like, if I'm angry at the judge in my case, not at all, because he's in an impossible position. From what he saw, he thought that I was a bad person, that I was going to continue to hurt people. And he has no way to know different because he saw me, what, twice for five minutes? Like, right. how would he have any idea of who I am or my character? Because we're asking judges to do an impossible thing. Okay, guess, you know, pick out of the hat how long this guy needs to be in prison before it's going to be safe to let him out in society. It's just, it's an insane system that's been running for years and years. 
uh, with no real examination or logic. And I, I'm glad that there seems to be a lot more conversation these days where people are asking these fundamental questions like, hey, why do we do this way? This doesn't seem to make any sense. Did you see a lot of, you know, some of these issues that you're talking about here that are a lot of, you know, preparing people? Well, I mean, what you're describing is a system that's designed on rehabilitation, which is kind of what our system is supposed to be, right? It's not, but that's what it's supposed to be. But the way things are now, did you see per, like a lot of recidivism where, where people, I hope I always get that word wrong, but where you saw people come out and then come right back in because they just weren't prepared to be, be in the outside world? So, yeah, well, yes and no. It's an interesting thing. Of I did most of my time at higher level institutions, which most people had longer sentences. So it wasn't like we had a lot of people going home. Like I saw more people go home in 10 months at Coffeewood than I did in 18 years at Buckingham and Ottawa. Mm-hmm. But of those guys that I did see go home, yeah, there were a couple that came back three and four and five times while I was in one time. Now at Coffeewood, that was really bad because there was no, the whole mentality of that prison was just, um, I, it was horrible. Like I, I've never seen a place that was like more of a, criminal training camp than that because of the access, the lack of access to resources, the lack of humane treatment, the lack of programming, the lack of any focus on anything other than just warehousing. And it was literally like, we're holding you just long enough to let you back out. And then we know you're going to be back. But the higher level institutions like Buckingham, I really want to highlight the positive things because one of the things about Buckingham is there was a culture of every prison. I don't know exactly how that happens, but I guess it's culture is a complicated thing. So, but the culture was of supporting programming and rehabilitation. If you went to the warden and said, hey, I want to teach a class on this, he'd say, hey, can you show me some resources? Can you prove this is a thing? Okay, you're approved. We had the Freedom of Everything, which is a group that was supported. It was inmate run or prisoner run to design to address the issues that guys needed to prevent them from going back to prison. Because the prison wasn't doing it, but they said, hey, you guys want to do this? This is great. Please go ahead and do it. Um, and that was amazing. Because just having a culture that was empowering people to do positive things, to run positive programs, to do when I first got there, there was like a rotary club within the prison that used to do uh, donation drives and, and uh, fundraising every year for the local Little League teams or for local cancer research. I'm not local, but like for the local cancer hospital. Like they were doing things that were meaningful. And then you go to other places and the culture is just, we don't, we don't do that. No, you're not allowed to do any of these. And so even within the Department of Corrections, there's just this huge like variety of approaches. And some make a little more sense and are just kind of hogtied by the bureaucracy. And others are just completely ludicrous and just essentially guaranteeing recidivism. Yeah, well, and it it seems almost asked backwards that the you know it's great they're doing they have those programs and they allowed you guys to do that kind of work and education in the longer term facility, but then in the shorter term facility, the ones where guys are you know more likely to go home sooner, and there they're giving them nothing. Mm-hmm. So they're just sending these guys right back out into the world. And because people have a, a a lot of times people say, well, we can't let murderers out or we can't let robbers out. First of all, violent criminals as, as a group are far less likely to come back to prison than nonviolent criminals. And then murderers, for example, are the least likely to come back. They have the lowest recidivism, recidivism rate of any crime. So but we don't think about it that way. And that doesn't, there's still an issue of severity and whether punishment needs to be meted out for a certain period of time for, in the interest of justice. But I think we have this idea that we need to, you know, keep these really dangerous people inside when in fact it's the people who are, you know, committing drug crimes, which that, that's a whole separate issue because I've, I'm firmly on the side of legalization because I just think it's completely insane that we treat a public health crisis as a criminal crisis. I agree. Or, you know, car theft or petty theft, which is, again, usually related to drugs and and addiction. But yeah, that's really where the threat is. That's where the recidivism rate is. And that's why places like Coffeewood are constantly full and constantly chicken. 
Uh, whereas there's a culture of a little bit of change and re- responsibility and accountability places like what? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Did you, did you feel that there was a more of a feeling? And I don't know, either, either you know, I know you've talked a lot about uh, solitary confinement being used for punishment. Did you, did you, did you have a feeling that, 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 that you were, that this was a lot more punitive base than rehabilitative? Yeah. I mean, again, in particular institutes with particular staff, like we had a really good staff at Buckingham that made it more about or was willing to talk more about rehabilitation. But as a whole, the Department of Corrections is designed to incarcerate, punish, and basically warehouse until release. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the the solitary confinement? I know that was one of the, the key issues you've talked about on your TikTok. Yeah, so thankfully, the, there have been some uh, the Supreme Court has, has essentially said that you cannot house people in solitary confinement for long periods of time. So we had, we, you know, the, the Rastas were a particular group. So in 1998, I believe, Ron Angelone, who was just a true monster of a punishment-minded uh, director of the Department of Corrections, came in and took away everything. He said, you've got to cut your hair. You can't have, I mean, he just, he did everything he could to kind of dehumanize people in the Department of Corrections. And so he passed a mandate that said you couldn't have hair past a quarter inch long. You couldn't have a beard at all, and you could have a mustache, and that's it. And I don't understand the discretion for a mustache but not a beard. And so you had Rastafarians who chose, based on their religious convictions, to not cut their hair. And they spent 18 years in the hole because basically the DOSA said, well, you don't want to cut your hair. We don't care. And just the inhumanity of that, literally saying, hey, this is your religious right, but we don't care because, you know, a completely unjustified argument about cleanliness or about safety, we're going to say you have to cut your hair. Um, and if you think about the, we had a couple guys come out when they finally rescinded the policy. And as you can imagine, these guys were not well, or not particularly well. Right. The, the trauma and the impact of 18 years of solitary confinement is so profound, it's hard to put into words. And yet that was just accepted. Like, everybody in the Department of Corrections thought, well, that's okay. We don't have to worry about this. And it, it's amazing, because even when I first went in, the mental health staff was screaming about it. They were like, how do you not understand how terrible an idea this is? How do you not understand how traumatizing this is? So there are certain situations, like, for extreme charges while in, for, like, violence or uh, escape attempts. Like, I had a buddy, he got locked up when he was 17 and got 21 years for a robbery. And so, as a 17-year-old who was young and a little dumb and a little motivated, but who I really like, I decided he was going to try to escape from prison. And their response to him trying to escape from prison was to stick him in the hole for five years straight. And, again, if you think about the, the psychological effect of that on a kid who was just kind of young and stupid, it was a profoundly damaging thing. And I'm amazed that he's out and as functional as he is, because... It's yeah. It's 
really bothersome. Uh, but again, like I said, the Supreme Court has made a rule, and there have been implementations. That it is much harder for them to stick people in long-term segregation, and there's there are a lot more checks and balances now, which I'm very grateful for, because when I first got locked up, it was just standard practice. Yeah, I have a, f- a friend of mine, you're probably familiar with him, Damien Eccles, one of the West Memphis Three. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was... Yeah, he spent 10 years in solitary confinement. I just can't imagine. And he's talked a lot about it, how just damaging that is. I mean, even physically, how damaging, besides the mental and emotional trauma. It's very problematic. Again, I mean, I think there, there are some positive things happening. And the fact that we're having this discussion and this discussion is being had in legal circles and in kind of social circles and political circles means people are, are looking at the fact that something is wrong and something can be done differently, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And I'm more optimistic now than I've ever been. But, you know, one of the most common questions I get is, do you really believe that we could have a major shift in criminal justice? And the answer is, you know, it depends on the day. Some days I am full of hope and I'm full of optimism. And other days I just look at the callousness and the kind of disregard of of basic humanity that bothers me. And this isn't just about the humanity of of prisoners, because I understand people saying, hey, we want to prioritize the wellness of, of victims. And I completely agree, because the problem with our system now is a punitive model is there is no attention paid to the victim. So there are three factors in the, in the crime, right? There is the perpetrator, the victim, and then the community in which this crime happens. And all of them have to be looked at as far as, okay, what can we do to address this situation? What can we do to heal this situation? What can we do to move forward? But instead of any of that, all of the attention is focused on the perpetrator. And all of the resources are expended on punishing the perpetrator, not on reforming him or not on providing treatment and support for the victim or healing the community, but again, only on punishing the perpetrator. So victims are left aside. And, you know, the most, one of those profound, actually, I'll say the most profound experience I had as a result of the Department of Corrections is they do have a pilot program, which has now been stopped because of COVID, but it was available in a few institutions. It was a victim impact program, and it was a written and a, a video testimony of people who had experienced crime, people who had suffered from different various crimes. And then at the end of the class, it was a person who chose to come in and tell their experience as a victim of crime. And this woman came in and told her story, and it was... It was one of the most emotional and powerful things I've ever heard in my life. And the, the question that I needed to know is somebody who was still struggling with the idea of redemption or moving forward or healing. I said, you know, to the person who hurt you, what could they possibly do? What is the one thing or the anything or the all the things that they could do to make this better? Like, do you want them to be punished? Do you want them to change? And she just said, don't do it again. Just don't hurt anyone else. And when that is her goal, like that is what she wants more than anything in the world, Yet we're not rehabilitating prisoners, we're punishing them and often further traumatizing them so they're more likely to go out and and commit another offense. We're not even respecting the wishes of the victim. We're actually respecting the wishes of some kind of archaic system that says punishment is good and we need to raise money for the king or just some insanity. Yeah, it's, you know, I think that luckily, now that you've come out into this, you've come out into a, a world hopefully where it feels like over the last five years or so the temperature it is changing a bit as far as how we look at everything from from how prisoners prisoners are treated to capital punishment there's in general there's people are talking about it now and i and i th- i think in large part that has to do with the boom of the true crime podcasts that are out there now all of a sudden people people have taken to the airwaves and talked a lot about wrongful convictions and we've gotten to know you know we, that's never happened before and over the last five years, it started with Sarah Koenig's serial. All of a sudden, we're hearing uh, millions of people around the world are hearing prisoners, people who are in prison talking, doing doing interviews. And I think it's really helped to for people to understand that these are human beings that are in there, innocent or guilty. 
they're still human beings and 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 so I I hope that the that your hope isn't misguided because I'm right there with you that I'm hoping that we're in a place where we can make some make some changes and and help fix this system. And I, I wanted I wanted to ask you, you know, when you got out, I was you know I asked what time year you went in. You went in 2002. What, what's amazing to me, one of the things amazing to me about you is you went into prison in the early days of the internet before social media was a thing, and you've come out and you've figured out TikTok. Before I've been able to. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I, I wouldn't go that far. So <laughs> the funny thing is, so my girlfriend, which is a whole another kind of crazy story in itself, you know, we had started, you talk about Prisoner's Voices, we had started a podcast while I was inside by mail saying, or by the, through the phone, kind of to try to tell that story and again, humanize the voice of someone who's inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got out, she was like, honey, you don't understand, like, you need to do this, you need to tell this story. My mindset was, who the hell is going to care about my story? I'm just some guy who went to prison. like. Mm-hmm. And yet I went up and I did a video on on top of Humpback Rock, which is a local hike, which is, I had always planned that. Like People always ask me what I want to do when I got out of prison. And I said, I want to go to the top of this mountain. Like This is a place where I get to put down all the crap that I've been carrying for, at that point I thought it was going to be 30 years, but in this case, 19 years. And I went up there and I just kind of talked about it. And I had a, a, an emotional experience. And it, was, it was a lot. Um but then all of a sudden, you know, within a week, I have 10,000 followers and people who are interested in the story and, and engaged. And it blew me away. But what I realized is that people are fascinated by the lives of those that they don't necessarily understand, or mm-hmm. especially those things that we don't get to see, right? Everybody wants to know about, like, the CIA. Or they, we don't know about the secrets. And there's this huge wall of opacity. There's this opaqueness around the criminal justice system. We have movies and TV, but nobody really knows what goes on behind the walls. I think people are fascinated by it. I mean, I think people are, like you said, fascinated by true crime. It's a popular thing. Yeah, so it's it's been an interesting experience to realize that there's some kind of worth and value to just telling my story to people who are interested and then having a platform to talk about, hey, this works really well and this doesn't. And if we actually care about public safety, if we actually care about, you know, that serving the wishes of the victims, like, well, I think we need to look at this. We need to have this discussion. And I've been incredibly grateful to have everything from that to the ability to do donation drives. I just dropped off, you know, 18 boxes of stuff to the local community service board. Because again, just like every government agency, they're underfunded and understaffed and they don't have the resources they need. But we can do that. We can kind of come together as a community and say, hey, we want to make sure that people have the basic things they need so we can, you know, if not ensure, at least make a greater chance of their success, which is going to reduce crime. It's going to stop the creation of new victims and it's going to better serve society because we're going to have people who are contributing members. I, I think it's just, it's just incredible. It's it's awesome that you're doing this work and you're and you're you're taking your second chance and trying to do some good in the world. Before I let you go, I wanted to, so you mentioned you were doing a podcast in prison. So I, I know that you were a co-creator of the prison. It's P R I Z E N. Uh, the prison podcast, lessons from lockup. Was that the one you were doing while you were in prison, or are you doing that when you got out, or both? Well, we've we've started. We have. <laughs> The problem is when I was in prison, I had all this time during the day because I only worked for like six hours. Now between work, because the problem is all the advocacy stuff and all the social media and all that, it doesn't really pay for like right. <laughs> a job. So unfortunately I have all that and then I have to work on top of that. And then I, I have some things that I'm really passionate about. I really want to get out of prison and do martial arts. So anyways, I just don't have a lot of time. So we have like, there's an amazing social worker in Baltimore that I really want to highlight his story. I really want to have him on the podcast. We've only successfully uh, recorded one episode, and even that, we I think I only have on YouTube. I haven't even uh, like done the audio to put it on uh, uh, on app, iTunes or Spotify or anything like that. Because again, we're just we're so insanely busy. But yeah, that was the one we did while we were inside, and that's one we're hoping to expand if we can figure out a way to kind of 
make time for a side project on top of all the other side projects and on top of the uh, actual work. Yeah. Right. Well, so are the ones that you did when you were inside, are those like up on like Apple or iTunes, Spotify, all that? Yeah, Prizen, P-R-I hyphen Z-E-N should be on all the major streaming services. Awesome. So people can check that out. Definitely give Jesse a follow on TikTok. His handle is at second underscore chances. Is that right? Or chancer. Chancer, yeah. Yep. Second underscore chancer. Give him a follow on, on TikTok and get involved in what he's doing and, and help him with his donations and all this stuff. I mean, you're doing great work. And, and Jesse, I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story. And I, and I wish you all the best. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.